attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. Happy holidays, everyone. Hanukkah's passed, Christmas ahead. This last shopping week, get your details done. Hey, Say you need some good shopping ideas for Christmas, I've got the perfect one. What better way to celebrate the holidays than to get your friend, loved one, a Camp Ojibwa History Project Brick of Fame. That's right, the Bricks of Fame are still going. Buy one for yourself, buy one for your family, buy one for your friends, buy one for your winning Collegiate Week team or your losing Collegiate Week team. Buy one for coming in in first place in Stunt Night. Check it out over at campojibwahistory.org. Just click on Bricks of Fame. You'll see the whole story right there. Get your very own commemorative brick right underneath the yellow bench, Collegiate Week bench, right in the center of the greatest place on earth, Camp Ojibwa. This week on the podcast, my guest, Al Futransky. Maybe you know him as Foo. Maybe you know him as Rationale. It's a great one. Al and I go way back. I make no bones about letting him know that he was a lot of the reason I came back early on in the very beginning of my camp career. He was one of my first friends at camp. And him helping uh, guide me and show me the ways of softball umpiring, knowing when and if the infield fly rule was applicable. So we had a great talk. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Al Futransky on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. I lit up from Reno. I was trailed by 20 First and foremost, for the record. Please state your name and years at camp. Al Futransky, 26 summers at Camp Ojibwa. And what years? I was a camper from 1967 through 1970, junior counselor in 71, 72, senior counselor in 76, and I came back in 1997 and have been back until today. Excellent. Excellent. So how did you first hear about camp? I don't remember. I, I had friends who went to camp, to Ojibwa. Al and Pearl were friends with my grandmother, so I always knew them. I just think I always knew about Camp Ojibwa. I see. So you, so you probably knew Al and Pearl before you were ever even camper age. Without question. Yeah. How did that, how did they get connected with your... Actually, I believe that my grandmother went to Temple with them. Oh. At but Temple, and I believe they went to the same place, and, and I wasn't, we weren't close with them, but I certainly knew who they were. Right. Nice. 
Okay. So it's time for you to go to camp. Do you get a camp call? Well, I guess I need to go back and preface. For some reason, my parents were against me coming to Camp Ojibwe. I still have <laughs> no idea why, but if I go through the history of the entire my entire years of camp, they did not like anything about the idea of Camp Ojibwe. So <laughs> when I was allowed to go to a summer camp, I was told I had to be 10 before I could go to summer camp. Okay. It would go away overnight, at which point I just I was ready to go to Camp Ojibwe. And they decided I had to go meet some downtown Chicago, some lady who was the camp lady who was going to tell me what camp I had to go to. Like she was a guidance counselor for camps or Basically. something? I remember huh. going to this little stuffy office in some building in downtown Chicago, and I don't even remember what she asked me or what we did, but it ends up that she recommends Camp Golden Eagle in Woodruff, Wisconsin. Oh, sure. Where I was then sent for two summers <laughs> with all these kids from Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh. And, I mean, it was okay, but... It, it, I was a meek kind of kid. I didn't argue. You know, this is what I was supposed to do. But after two years, I finally said, can I please go to Camp Ojibwe with my friends? At which point, I guess they gave in begrudgingly. And I got to come up to Camp Ojibwe in 1967. I was 12 years old. And I believe as soon as my feet hit the ground, I knew that this was the place I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Cabin 11, uh, Elliot Friedman and Steve Hamer were my counselors. It was quite a duo. Elliot was the... uh, (laughs) Broadway show tune nerd. Sure. And Steve Hamer was this really cool JC who turned me on to things like the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. And so Elliot had the great stereo, and he would blast his lovely show tunes all day. (laughs) But when he was not in the cabin, Hamer would then play all this great rock and roll and blues. And so it was really a very cool combination. A diversified upbringing. It was really fun. (laughs) Um, You were saying, you were talking about Chicago. Where, uh, what neighborhood were you from? I was raised in Evanston. Ah. And so um, there were, I don't know that there were any other kids from Evanston there at the time. Uh, a good friend who was at the time named Roger Glick lived nearby in Skokie. Um, Grant Bagan was another guy I knew, and he lived in Lincolnwood. Hmm. And uh, Steve Rosen and his brothers, Michael and Jimmy, lived in Chicago on the north side. Gotcha. And so we knew from Bryn Mawr Country Club is where I knew them all. Ah. Yeah, because I think during that period, that's when the sort of migration starts to happen, where it stops being city kids and Southsiders, yeah. and it starts moving more. It was more kids north. moving north. I mean, the guys I met were from Glencoe, Wilmette, and wasn't and a few from Highland Park. I only remember one good friend out of camp in those days, Keith Zimmerman, who ended up he was from Highland Park. Mm. He was way far north to us. That was way far sure. north. Absolutely. So you come to camp. You uh, your first experience. What's the very first thing you remember about camp? I don't remember what I remember. I just, I was one of those kids who really didn't know he was alive kind of thing. Sure. I just went along and I just had a good time and, and I was not memorable in any way. I'm sure my first year I did not impress people particularly, nor do I remember a whole lot of stuff other than playing the sports and hanging with my friends. Yeah. I mean, I was the kid behind the plate kind of drawing in the sand and uh, sure. doing those things, but sure. I had a good time and I liked the guys, so we were having a good, it was fun. Was the the other camp, was it also a sports camp that you'd gone to? Not like Ojibwa. Mm. It was, I mean, we played some sports. I, I remember a, a little golf course and the greens were made of oiled sand. It was just a weird thing. The whole thing was weird. I think there was a lot of waterfront. Um, sure. I was even and less alive crabs. in those days. Mm, right. And so I have even less concept of what that sure. was other than eight weeks. And Sure. But would you have called yourself a sports guy when you got here? I love sports. 
I, I mean, we played sports as kids. We played football on the street. We played um, a baseball game that we played with tennis balls in our driveway. Hmm. I just wasn't particularly good at them, but hmm. I loved to play them. And so, yeah, we followed the sports teams. I mean, in those days, the Sox and the Yankees were a big rivalry, and you could name all the players on both teams and the Cubs. We knew all, I knew all that stuff. You'd nice. play hockey in the basement in the winter with tennis balls and, and brooms and and so yeah, I love sports. I just was pretty spastic when I was uh, oh. when I was twelve years old. <laughs> got a little better as I got older. Sure, of course. I think that that kind of happens for everybody. Yeah. Um, so okay. your camp during your camper days, what were the things that you enjoyed doing at camp? What were the what was your favorite sport? What were the sports part of camp that you enjoyed most? I liked them all. Uh, softball was always my favorite, and as I got older, I got better at it. Mm. And in those days, we did have coaching. Um, in fact, this weekend I was. Ran into Joel Karansky, who was here, and in 1969, he was my basketball coach. And I still remember hours that Steve Rosen and I were the two tall guys, and he would take us out to the lake courts when we had break, and he would we would just practice missing. One guy would miss, and the other guy would get the rebound and put it back in. Mm. And we just practiced rebounding and putting the ball back in, rebounding and putting the ball back in. And we obviously were going to get better because yeah, we practiced. Yeah, for sure. And it was not work. It was just fun because that was what we needed to do. And mm. so we had instruction in the mornings, and we learned to get better at the games. We were coached, and I only played Watermelon League. The only league I was ever in for all hmm. my years at camp was Watermelon League. That's interesting. But we were coached. And the, the, good, the older guys, um, they were the ones who coached us. And so we knew how to play the sports, and we were eager to learn. So I knew how to hit behind the runner when there was first and second and less than uh, two outs. Yeah. I knew... To do, it was just reflexive. You just knew to do those things because you were coached. And so you had no choice but to get better. Mm. Do you feel like, I mean, knowing intimately how it is today at camp, and then do you feel like that was better? Or do you feel like it just played to a different sort of It was just a different camp? era. It was yeah. different. I don't believe that. I mean, the kids today do not know how to play softball nearly as well as we knew how to play softball. Certainly. But it's not a game they liked the way we liked softball. Right. At that they, time, softball was that the was camp the sport. sport. Volleyball, I watch these kids today play volleyball, and when we were playing, Mike Bagan basically was introducing volleyball to Ojibwa. Hmm. I remember when we learned the dig shot. That was a big thing to learn how to do that. <laughs> that was a really, I mean, it was new and revolutionary to us, and I don't know if it was in the volleyball world, but to us it was. And I watch these kids play volleyball today, and we, would, we wouldn't score a point on them. Wow. They know how to play the game way better than we ever did, yeah. and they're just much better at it. They like that sport better. They're better at it. Hmm. And so it's just different times and just different things. It's not better or worse. It's just different. This is a weird detail thing, but you just said you talked about the dig shots. So when you played volleyball at camp as a mm -hmm. camper, were they already sand? No, they were dirt courts. It was hard. It was grass courts. Yeah. No, when I came back in 97 and saw the sand, I was kind of, oh, whoa, what is this? <laughs> and, but again, it's, it's become, and now it's a high school, it's a varsity high school sport, which right. it was not back then. Right. And so a lot of these kids can play it at their schools. We never did. The only place we ever played it was here at camp. Hmm. And we didn't know what we were doing. Right. I mean, we never, I don't know that any of us ever even served overhand. Oh, We all sure. served underhand, to my recollection. There may have been one or two hot shots who could serve overhand. Yeah. I don't recall it. Nice. Uh, you said softball. Mm -hmm. You enjoyed softball. What position did you play? Uh, I was a first baseman as I got better. I started as catcher, and then as I got older and, and got a little more coordinated, I ended up being a first baseman. Mm. So during your, camper, uh -huh. uh, during your camper years, tell me about other stuff you remember. First of all, you start the day with dip or shower. 
It's always a very important question. Actually, are we you start a dipper? With Reveille. Oh, oh, of and I will tell you why. Because there were mornings that you prayed to have after Reveille, you prayed for a second call, which meant wash up, because it meant the weather was not good enough to go out for dipper shower, oh. and you got to stay in bed another couple of minutes. And so there were some mornings that you heard Reveille, and you're like, please, because it took the bugler another. 10 seconds or whatever it would be for him to get his lips together and do whatever he was going to do to play. I don't know. I wasn't awake to see him. but right. And you're like, wash up, please, wash up. I don't want to have to go out there. Wait, so what did he play? Um, it would be like first call. Like oh, the lineup, I see. First call for lineup. Okay. And you'd hear that and go, oh, yes, I, get to, I don't have to go out there. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't terrible. I think back to you'd go out and... Uh, and my day was more Mickey than Al. I mean, Al occasionally would do it. I'd say probably two-thirds of the time it was Mickey and about one-third of the time it was Al. And you'd be in your robes. And, and to be fair, the exercises were, it was not like military calisthenics. You would <laughs> right. take your arms and spread them out and run them in circles. And, you know, sure. you count to eight and eight and then back. Because we can still remember one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, ho. And every exercise, <laughs> five, four, three, two, ho. And you know to stop. And so it's not like you worked up some sweat and we're doing burpees right. or, I mean, it really wasn't that tough. <laughs> it was like and third grade gym class. Sort of thing. Maybe not even that. It was kind of like stretching. It was just, I think it was more the symbolism of it mm. than the actual exercises of it. And then I was a dip guy. Mm. I, I love the lake. I still like getting in the lake. You still get a dip in once or twice. Yeah, and summer. I don't really swim. I just dip. Mm. Even on a summer day, a hot summer day, I'll jump in and I'll flop around in there for about a minute or two and then I'll get out and that's fine. That's what I want is a dip. <laughs> I'm not going to be swimming laps or anything. It's all like the lake that. you need. Yeah, that's enough. But it's but so I would do that. Then we do, um, depending on the year, and especially when I was a counselor, I would have my kids clean the cabin before breakfast. Mm. But most It's a years, slick move. Yeah, because that gave me a chance to go out and get crazy during cleanup. Right. the kids already had it clean. But, but when I was a camper, it was generally after breakfast. You know, you'd have lineup. You go in for breakfast, get a platter of greasy, greasy fried eggs, pass them around. Uh, some of the breakfasts were good, and some <laughs> a little gross. Uh, I but, just, I always imagine that a weighted breakfast is so hard to do well. Yes, because you can't. That food is not food well, meant to choices, sit on a plate. It depended on what it was. If it was hot cereal. No, I was. I'm not a fan of hot cereal more so now, but I wasn't as a kid. But then you got out of sweet rolls. Oh. So the hot cereal was good because you got sweet rolls with it. If there was cold cereal, there would be bowls on the table with the boxes, the little boxes of the cold okay. cereals, yeah, which is okay if you could get a good one. Oh, but you kind sure, of have to course. fight for the good one, you know, the Frosted Flakes as opposed to the... Uh, special K or something. Special K crap on a stick, whatever yeah. it was they were doing. So you fight them. But that meant you were having eggs and toast. Mm. And the toast was like, it was butter with some bread. It was like, yeah, I think you could you could wring it out. But it was delicious. I mean, it was, sure. it was absolutely delicious because it was just butter. And then scrambled eggs were okay, but they mm. would serve soft-boiled eggs, oh. which could never come. You can't cook for that many people and have them come out soft-boiled. That's not good. So they were somewhere between soft-boiled and hard-boiled. <laughs> and then you'd have fried eggs with just these greasy eggs on a platter, kind of on top of each other. Mm. But again... We had, it was fine. It was food, and we ate it. And right. None of it, we all raved about the food. We thought it was sure. great stuff. So, <laughs> what did we know? You didn't go hungry at Ojibwa, right? So that was breakfast. Then you go back clean the cabin, and I'm sure you've heard this from other guys of our generation. Then you would have line up and have instruction in the morning. That would be the morning period, followed by general swim, then lunchtime rest period, 
than leagues. You'd have one league in the afternoon and then another general swim, then dinner, and then usually another league after dinner, and then late evening. Mm. Now, was, was snack a thing then? Snack was when Al and or Mickey came around. If you'd been really, really good, you might think you were going to get a snack. So you would clean the cabin real good because they would walk in. And this is messy, this is at the at it, the night. At the night after taps, and you'd get the good night Al, you know, all mm. in Al, good night Al, and then you'd hope that they would come in the door and turn on the light. That was a great. If they came in the door and turned on the light, then you might get a snack. Mm. But a snack, you don't know what it was. It was just leftovers from the kitchen. So you might have got chicken. You might get cold chicken, but you might get a piece. You might get cake or, or dessert or something yeah. like that. And then some days when you thought you earned it and you thought you'd been good and done everything and the cabin had been really good and they walked by and didn't come in and turn out the light, then you were real bummed. Mm. So you did not get it every night. It was a special treat to get something after taps. At least from the, you know, something from the kitchen. Official, right. Official, right. Now, what about uh, during the day, the midday snack? The no, there was snack no of the snack, snack, snack sort of thing. No, no there, was, there was lunch, there was dinner. Mm. There was nothing in between. Now, you say you might get food from elsewhere. Were food runs as prominent? No, it was not a food run like today. Today, you would have a food run for a cabin. Sure. Back then, if a counselor liked you, and especially as you got older, by the time you were in cabin 13, you would have cultivated counselor friends. And certainly by your second year in 13, because by then, the JCs, the first year JCs, were the guys we were in the cabin with the year before. Oh, sure, of course. And so we were obviously close with them and, and friendly with them. And... If, if, I mean, they'd sneak you back a Papa Burger and a quarter root beer kind of thing from mm. A&W, and you'd go hide in the shower house and eat it. I mean, there was you never <laughs> flaunted it. Right. And, and so it was a sneaky kind of covert operation. But by the time you were second year in Cabin 13, it was fairly commonplace that guys would do that for you. Nice. But it was still covert and sneaky. Sure. I, mean, I can remember sitting in the new shower house, which is now the uh, lake shower house, I guess. To me, it's the new and hiding, kind of sneaking in there in the corner with a buddy, and we'll have a quarter root beer and a Papa Burger or a Mama Burger or whatever they had from <laughs> A&W, and just sitting there and snarfing it real fast before you got caught. Wow. And, and that was a big deal. <laughs> but there was no such thing as a cabin food run. Yeah. No, 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 that never happened, to my recollection. Hmm. Uh, now, in those days, was Elliot big on getting food for you guys? or No. No. And Elliot was my counselor three of my four years as a camper. Wow. Elliot was my counselor. Uh, cabin 11 and both years in cabin 13. He was not my counselor in cabin 12. That was Gary Greenberg. Mm. But, uh, and I was a real putz in cabin 13. In cabin 12, I was, it was one of those years where I just finished eighth grade and, you know, I was 13 years old and I was, everything sucked and, and I was going to be a hard ass and I was going to not go with the program. And I just was, I did not have a good summer at the end of that summer. Mm. And I remember the last night of camp, Gary went through every kid in the cabin and he went over each of us in our summers and he basically told me that my summer sucked and he was absolutely correct but it really had kind of slapped me in the face like oh other people noticed someone who wow. i respected noticed that and i guess i ought to get my act together for next year hmm. and so the next two years i did as a camper but that's a big i mean that's a big thing though for sure for a counselor to take the time to, to not only acknowledge it but to do it in a way that made you want to change as opposed to doing it in a way that just made you go, yeah, well, whatever, screw you, buddy. And I, I could have gone either way. I mean, to do it, as I look back now as an adult and a teacher, to do that in front of all the other kids is probably not something I would today do yeah. to a child. However, for me, it was effective at the time, and I'm glad he did it. Mm. So thanks, Gary. <laughs> 
so you, then you're in 13 for two years. Yes. Now, of the things that happened with 13, uh, the Braves, the Braves, for example, tell me a little bit about the Braves at, during your period of time. Well, when we were initiated, I, I was 12 years old when I first came, and they voted on Braves. And there were three powwows. So the first powwow, a new camper was not allowed to be um, elected into the Braves. And they only elected eight or ten kids. So I was elected the second powwow of my first year. And then you didn't want to be elected third powwow because that was the... You didn't know if you were a Schwartz pick or not. You didn't... Because everyone who hadn't become a Brave up to that point got to be a Brave, the third powwow. Right. So second powwow, I knew I had actually been voted in. And third powwow, I know a lot of kids, I'm sure, had been voted in, but you just didn't know. And the initiation, I did not care for at all. I mean, they put the pillowcase on your head and we went out to the campfire site. And I do not ever want to hear the words air raid again, where you <laughs> get down and start digging in the dirt and then make us wrestle with each other, all with pillowcases on our heads and hold your arms out and they put logs on them. And it was really a physical initiation mm. that sucked. And then the next morning, the whole next day you were on silence. The next morning, they woke us up around 6 o'clock in the morning to do chores around camp. I remember cleaning out the campfire sites and cleaning the medicine man office and, and doing those kind of things. And the only time you could talk all day was during the sports, during mm. the games you could talk. But otherwise, you were on silence the whole day. Um, and then had to do chores. And then that night, they initiated you physically again and then pulled the extra brave crap on you. And then they finally said, you're brave. Here, have a Coke. <laughs> which I thought was something. So, you know. And so when we became officers, um, Jimmy Rubens was the chief my year, 1970, and I was the medicine man. I know Keith Zimmerman, I believe, was the scribe. Um, and the guys, we were officers. We refused to initiate. Mm. We did not do it. Uh, part of it was we were budding young hippies. And, and so the times were political in terms of those kind of things. I was still only 15 years old. But, but it was, it was uh, I didn't want to do it. And neither did Jimmy, neither did, neither did the other officers. And Elliot was in charge of the Braves in those days. And he went along with us. Hmm. And he allowed us to not initiate. I believe it came back for a while after our time. Hmm. But I wouldn't do it, and neither would Jimmy. Or None of us would. And so our year as officers, I don't know if we did anything with the kids. We may have sat them out and talked with them or something. I don't even yeah. recall doing anything with them. Other than hey, you're brave now. I mean, we still voted and did it the old that that way, right? But we refused to initiate. I can see Elliot being on board with that. He I mean, that's board. definitely the kind of thing that he would have helped yeah. get rid of it if he could. And in return, that same year when we were supposed to be initiated for the Warriors, and I don't know if they ever did physical initiations for the Warriors, but we did not. They took us to the far field, and I remember Duke Gutterman was supposed to initiate me, and he we just sat and talked. Nice. And I think part of that was because he respected that we didn't do it to other kids. Mm. And the only one of us I remember getting any kind of initiation was Steve Katz initiated Keith Zimmerman by doing things like they raced up the goalposts. And so, but Keith liked that kind of stuff, so it was fine. <laughs> sure. I mean, it was okay. It wasn't like it was something tough. He liked and doing Steve that. certainly Steve loved, loved that, too. that too. Yeah, of course. And so they both liked doing that, so that wasn't like it was a tour. They were having a good time. Mm. And so, But I remember sitting on the far field that night on Warrior Night and... Theoretically, we're supposed to be initiated, but they didn't do anything to us. Hmm. Now, in those days, did the officers, what did the officers do as, in terms of camp? Like Nothing. They, nothing, okay. Basically, <laughs> That's sort of the question. Basically yeah. nothing. We were just the officers of the Braves. It was an honor. I mean, we were the big parts in the powwows. We sure. had the big roles in the powwow. Um, I remember our powwows. Roger Glick was a basic pyromaniac. 
And um, so one powwow, we got to, we had an incredible lake beach powwow, and he lit the water on fire. He lit the lake on fire, and he okay. used kerosene on top of the lake. Might have been gasoline. Kerosene, one or the other, because oh. when we'd start campfires, he would use kerosene. But for And we tested it with just this little bit to make sure it worked, and it did. But come powwow time, he, there was quite the flame. <laughs> and I also walked in from the first island carrying a torch. There's a sandbar, basically, that goes in from the mm. end of the first island to the pier. And I remember walking in with the torch, and the water got up to maybe my neck at the highest. And it was really pretty cool. That is cool. It took a long time. Sure. I believe the powwow took a lot longer than anticipated <laughs> to walk in from the island. I think it was a little longer than they had expected. But nonetheless, we did it. And I remember doing that, and it was very cool. Yeah. And so 38 minutes were later, the, the torch yeah, arrives right. on I mean, the beach. Taps had sounded, and I'm just starting to get back into the beach. You know? Okay, all in, Al. Yeah, here comes Al coming in from the island. So That's that, great. So that was kind of Braves. And, and then you had Braves night. That was the only really perk of being a brave, other than you were not on brave silence when there was a powwow. And when there was a powwow in those days, the kids stayed on brave silence till the next morning. Mm. It wasn't the powwow's over, go back to your cabin and have a good night and play. You stayed on brave silence until the morning, unless mm. you were brave. And then, of course, the big treat, everything, you go to the lodge and they'd give you Coke. Seems like anything you did, you go to the lodge, they'd give you Coke. Well, and I can't, apparently, we were real happy to go to the lodge and get a Coke. Sure. It was a big deal. <laughs> but Braves Night. That's, Braves that night, was going you would to take town, one right? night, and then all the Braves would get to go in town, and I, I believe we'd go to a movie and then have dinner, mm. and then come back to camp. And so it was special, Braves night was special. That was really the perk of being a Brave, mm. is you got one extra night in town. Nice. Yeah, that was fine. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. And they'd drive you. It was better than walking the, the, the last trip day, which was hell on, it was great. That's sarcasm. For those of you who are listening, that was sarcasm. And in fact, I must tell you, I've been listening to previous podcasts, and some of these guys talk about how they get boated over to Keishans, and then they'd walk to town. They're soft. They're just soft. <laughs> we walked all the way to town from camp. There was no boating over to Keishans. 110 degrees. It probably wasn't, but it felt that way to me. Sure. We're walking all the way to town to see some crappy movie and eat at Zimpleman's. And, uh, <laughs> and then sit in the green truck and drive home. Mm. That was the best part, by the way, the green truck drive home. The green home. truck drive home. But... But I t the walk to town, the only thing is, oh, time, I'm going to talk about trip days. I remember there's the walk to the Clearwater store, which was equally as bad as the walk to town. <laughs> but the absolute worst trip day was canoeing across Eagle Lake. And so you would get in canoes, and you would canoe all the way through Catfish, and then you'd go through the channel, and then you would get to this giant lake that was Eagle Lake that seems, and again, this is my memory from years ago, but it was always windy enough, and I was sure there were always white caps on that lake. And it was, of course, it was like me walking to school five, you know, and, and sure. 12 feet of snow both Uphill ways and both all that. Ways. But it seems to me that the white caps changed directions on the way home. <laughs> but you would go across this big ass lake, and there was this little park at the end of the lake. And we'd get out, and you'd get a piece of bologna and two pieces of bread. And that was dinner, and then, okay, boys, canoe back. Oof. And to me, that was hell. I hated that trip. There was nothing about trip day that I recall liking <laughs> at all at camp. What about the other days like that? Gold Rush Day, Circus Day, any of that stuff that you those liked? Those were fun. Yeah. I enjoyed those. Um, Gold Rush Day was a hoot. Um, I was almost too old for the panning for gold stuff, but mm. they, they had an obstacle race. And I remember my job in the obstacle race at least one year was to saw a log 
that a big log and there were two guys on a big saw. Okay. And one of the things to do, you had to saw through the log. And that was one of the obstacles on Gold Rush Day obstacles right. at the camp campfire site. And I remember doing that. Huh. Um, yeah, the Gold Rush obstacle was a little more utilitarian, right? Like you'd have mm-hmm. to hammer a nail or something. Yeah, it kind of had to do with like... Gold Rush type of skills. Yeah. You know, Old West kind of skills and... And, and you have to remember that we were raised by the World War II generation. Well, certainly. And so that's yeah. who raised us, and that was what we knew. And we were also in the middle of the Cold War. And so, by gosh, those beds had to be tight. I mean, the military, that's how they were raised. That's what they learned to do. Yeah. So you, the shoes were lined up. And, I mean, I've heard you here on the other podcast that have lined up and clean up competition. And so the idea of the physical kind of stuff was, that was just normal. Just part of it. It wasn't yeah. a big deal. Um, circus day was okay. I don't remember it as being anything particularly special, except I think we got cotton candy or something goofy. I'm sure it was something sugary to eat. Sure. And so that was a big Maybe treat. a Coke. And, and yeah, <laughs> no, it wasn't that special. <laughs> but you got a Coke. Now, one thing I always talk about, of course, is the, the balance with the competition in sports at camp here mm-hmm. at Camp Ojibwa is balanced uh, with the entertainment side. So the stage, the Ojibwe stage, the singers, the Jubilee, were any of those parts things you I took part in? I did all that stuff. Uh, not my first year. But as, as years went on, I became an Ojibwe singer. Um, hearing me sing now, I have no idea how I became an Ojibwe singer. Although, talking to Elliot years later, I guess my voice was deep and they needed deep voices. Well, I was going to say. So it I had mean, nothing <laughs> to do with my singing talents in any way. But I was an Ojibwe singer and that was a big deal. It was fun. Yeah. And we would sing and we'd do the plays. Um, I had roles. I remember doing uh, Supper Time from the Charlie Brown show in one some show. Sure. And uh, in the eighth week show, I think it was the year I was, I, I don't remember if it was a junior counselor or a senior counselor. I think it was 1976. They did Cinderella and I was the fairy godmother. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> one of my great ad libs on the stage was Larry Lubin was Cinderella. Okay. And he was a camper, I believe, at the time. I'm sure he was a camper at the time. And I recall getting on this. I remember before this, the play, there was a, I had to use the restroom. And at one point, there's a song called It's Impossible. And before the song started, there's some banter back and forth in the play about this is impossible, that's impossible. And I remember saying, you think that's impossible? You should try going to the bathroom in a fairy suit. <laughs> because it was next to impossible at that particular time. It did get a laugh. It got a good laugh. But <laughs> So, I mean, but I, all that stuff was fun. I loved yeah. the singing in the mess hall, and and it was just part of camp. But it was... We knew all the songs. You'd sing the songs from the last year's Jubilee. Mm. And then second half of camp, you would sing the songs from the that year's Jubilee. Sure. And so and, and there were fun songs. Sing the Standing on the Corner medley, I still remember. Um, and, of course, there were really good music people here. When I first started, Lou Fletcher, Lou Mager, and Paul James mm. were all involved in music. Yeah. And they were very talented people, and they made it fun. And then there was Elliot to chew on his towel and thinks Certainly. he was uh, Cecil B. DeMille or whoever he thought he was. <laughs> uh, I, I should probably go with a Bob Fosse or some Broadway type of sure, producer sure, sure, director. Sure. But, you know, it was his moment of, you know, I, I think of uh, the Springtime for Hitler show, the the producers. Right. And the guy that's directing it. And that kind of, sometimes Elliot reminds me of that particular character. <laughs> you may want to cut that, Chris, but you don't have to. You can put it in. I'm sure Elliot will only not talk think, to me at all next summer. Well, that's true. I think, yeah, I don't know, he might take that as a compliment. Well, I don't um, mean it as an insult. Sure. 
Yeah, so you're there. Yeah, you're there right after the Jubilee changes from the, the minstrel shows finished and the Jubilee starts. And in those first few years of the Jubilee, they were huge shows. They were like ninety minutes. You know, I can't recall. How, I just know that we worked real hard at them and we put them on, and they were fun to do, and they yeah. were well received. And I think they were. I look at it. I, th- I was about to say I think they were pretty high quality, but my memory could be full pulling tricks on me and maybe they weren't. I'm, I'm glad there are no videotapes around to prove me wrong. They were great. It's incredible how good we were. We should have put them on Broadway. Best ones ever. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no one to refute that. Uh, one other thing about being a camper during that time, tell me about, did you as a camper have a relationship with Alan Pearl once you were at camp, yes. especially having known them ahead of time? Pearl Schwartz. I absolutely love Pearl Schwartz. And she liked me. And so if Pearl liked you, as you've heard on other podcasts, the world was your oyster. Mm. And apparently if Pearl didn't like you, it wasn't. But I wouldn't know what that was like. Mm. And so and I, I, Pearl was just such a cool lady. And there are still to this day things I remember Pearl telling me and, and learning from. Al was more distant. Al, first off, had no idea who anybody was. I mean, he did not know your name unless your parents were standing next to you and they had the checkbook. Otherwise, uh, Longfellow over here. Hey, Paul Bunyan over here. You know, Euripides, get your butt over here. And he'd call you over and we'd pluck chickens with Al. And then he'd, of course, give you a Coke. Sure. (laughs) But I can remember sitting behind the mess hall plucking chickens and, you know, Paul Bunyan, you're really plucking, you know. But it was fun. He was fun. Mm. And you saw Al as the fun grandfather kind of guy at Mm. that point. And then every once in a while you'd see him play sports. And he actually was a very good athlete. And at that time, I have no idea how old he was, but I'm guessing he was probably hitting around 70 in yeah. the late 60s and, you know, early 70s. And he was a really good volleyball player. Hmm. And I can remember going to the Covenant Club in downtown Chicago, where my grandmother was a member, and watching and seeing Al play volleyball hmm. at, at that age. And he was really very good at it. But Pearl, she, in the, she ran the lodge. As you're a staff man, there was, I mean, because every night Pearl would be playing bridge in the lodge. And and so she was, she and if you had a social, the social in those days was a cabin with another cabin from the, of the girls' camp. Just one cabin. Basically one cabin, sometimes two, up in the lodge, I think with armed guards, <laughs> who would not, to, because you could not leave the lodge, <laughs> playing records on a record player. I was going to say, course. in my head, it's like an episode of... of uh, Andy Griffith, where they've got the little record player set up and a couple of soda pops, and they're in one little room. Maybe, maybe a little bit more than Wonder Years. Oh, okay, but Fair somewhere enough. in that sure. in that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, and and so Agawak, you know, they'd come over. Chippewa were really the only two camps we had socials with, mm. and a group of girls would come over. And I think the main purpose of the socials was for the counselors to meet and hit on each other, so they can meet later at the bars and and, and hook up. But for the kids, I mean, that was Pearl. Boy, you weren't gonna mess you weren't gonna dance too close you weren't gonna do anything that was improper you were gonna be a gentleman Mm. and otherwise pearl was gonna get on your case and you were gonna know about it and so as i said we would i think they i think they had in those days we had riflery and so i think they had guards with 22s at the door of the lodge to make sure we did not try to sneak out or do anything like that that's a joke too um and we didn't do anything with maramita back then no 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 maramita menominee were like verboten you didn't even say those words wow they were not even spoken of. Um, but one thing I still remember from Pearl Schwartz, I was a waiter my second year as a junior counselor, and I waited at the head staff table. Uh, Jimmy was the head waiter, but he didn't like waiting head staff. He liked second staff, and I enjoyed waiting head staff. And so I waited them, and Pearl came in on a Friday night, 
to light the candles before. So she always made sure it was all ready before the dinner started. And as she came in, I said, Pearl, you really look lovely tonight. And I still remember going, you mean I don't look lovely all the time? I don't look lovely every night? <laughs> and I, of course, went, yeah, 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 And she said, what you're supposed to say is, I look exceptionally lovely. And I, to this day, hear her voice when I want to say to a woman or something that they look nice, I still will say, you look exceptionally nice tonight or exceptionally lovely. <laughs> and Pearl Schwartz's voice is still in my head. That's rules for living right there. Whatever it is, that was nice. Pearl. Well, you just touched on being a JC. Tell me a little bit about the JC experience for you. I loved it. It was great fun. Um, and again, my parents, I had to fight to do these things. My last year as a camper, I made a deal with my parents who hated coming up here so much that they did not have to come for visiting and I could go to camp, <laughs> which was fine by me. Sure. I didn't care if they came or not. And so, so that was the deal that year. Then to be a JC, and of course, everyone knows that in those days we paid the $50 for the laundry or whatever we did, and then we got to play softball. But we waited at the tables. I still remember sitting home, I mean, waiting with sitting with the guys and eating. Um, and here we are, 17, 18-year-old guys with no supervision. Sorry to bore you. Sitting in the mess hall. And I can remember the one year, I think it was my second year. It started out, someone would say, pass the butter. So, of course, I'm going to pick up the butter and throw it to the person. <laughs> so then it became, pass the butter and the plate. So, eventually, someone would pass the butter and the plate separately to the person. <laughs> so then it became, pass the butter and the plate simultaneously at the same time. And so then someone eventually figured out to turn it upside down and pass it. <laughs> then it would be, eventually, it evolved into, pass the butter and the plate simultaneously at the same time right side up. <laughs> And that's how you would get anything that you wanted to eat. <laughs> and it just became reflex. I also learned not to cuss after my JC year. Mm. When, I mean, again, it's 17, 18-year-old guys with no supervision. And so we thought, of course, we were very cool. And every other word was an F-bomb. Sure. While we're sitting at the table. and Because we there was no one to stop us. And after that summer, I believe it was, again, my second year as a JC, I came home and my mom had fixed all my favorite foods and just like you would at the end of the summer and we're sitting at the table and without even thinking, because I was so conditioned after eight and a half weeks of it, I looked at her and said, hey, pass the effing potatoes. And the minute that came out of my mouth, I looked at my parents and realized, oops, <laughs> that was a mistake. And wow. I learned from that night. I'm much, I still will certainly cuss my share, but sure. I know when to cuss and when not to cuss. <laughs> I learned that, wow. and that was part of the JC experience. Nice. Um, my second year as a JC, I was with Mitch Rubens and Grant Bagan, and the three of us were in cabin 11, and it rained a lot that summer. And so we slept a lot. I seem to mm. remember Denny regularly coming in to wake us up mm. during the middle of the day. And not being happy about it. Because sure. the three of us went out pretty much every night. And Grant was a regular size guy. Maybe small. He was smaller than I was. Mm. I'm a pretty good size guy. And Mitchell was a behemoth. <laughs> Mitchell was like 6'4", <laughs> 250 on a good day. He sure. was big. And he was a great athlete and a terrific guy. He became one of my very closest friends. Mm. And I can remember nights where the three of us would go around after we came back in and we would moon other we would wake up other counselors to moon them and we would start with little grant and then me and then mitchell 
And we seem to like doing that. I remember doing that quite frequently. The three of us doing that a lot. You get all three. What a deal. Oh, you got all three in order. (laughs) In order of the size of our arse. (laughs) Because Mitchell's must have been incredible. Sure, of course. Luckily, I was part of the group that was doing it, and I did not have to see Mitchell's ass. (laughs) So, so your your council years were full of a little more shenanigans than than some. Okay, yeah, I can't say I okay. Uh, sure, they were. Tell me a little bit about that. So, I because I believe that as a sta- part of growing up as an Ojibwe guy is a being a staff man mm-hmm. and understanding the responsibility side of camp that you haven't necessarily had to do as a camper. Correct. And then with that comes the side which is the freedom to go out and be. Or do whatever, you know, as you said, without supervision, but oh. to learn those lessons about, you know, when that works, when that doesn't, and that sort of thing. And to add to that, I was a junior counselor in 1971 and 1972, which was hippie tie. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty tumultuous time in the yeah. country. And we were, there was a lot of experimentation. I, the first time I ever smoked pot was um, on a night out at camp, mm. which... Actually, at that story, there was a guy, Mark Zusser, who was the, he was from California. He was a counselor. He had fallen in love with the girl from the Dairy Dandy. Okay. And she, oh, she was so beautiful. Zuss was telling, he was telling us about all, he was, all this, oh, she was so gorgeous. She was so beautiful. She was so this. And so I went out with a couple guys and we happened, it's the first time I ever actually was stoned. And so we were doing a lot of giggling. It was the first time I ever felt the effects of marijuana. And so I had the giggles. And we go to see to the Dairy Dandy to get whatever we're going to get. It happens we're going to get some ice cream or whatever it was. And I remember we're going up to the window, and this girl was not gorgeous. And in fact, I said, could I please have a large chocolate ice cream nose? Because she had this incredibly large <laughs> nose. And Zusser's girl had this schnoz that made mine look like a pug. And so, and I remember just giggling. I couldn't get it out. And instead of saying ice cream cone, I just couldn't stop looking at it. And I remember saying I would like an ice cream nose. And just, uh, oh yeah, yeah. It was, it was lovely. Oh, um, poor girl. We used to hang out at the bowling alley, which was under the theater. Hmm. And the guy, I don't know what the, the bar had a name. But we called it Harley's because the bartender was named Harley. It may have been called Harley's. Okay. I don't remember. And then Bonson's, which was uh, right next to it in town, there was a watermelon stand, mm. a wooden watermelon stand, which was obviously cleared of the fruit in the evening. And so we would hang out at the watermelon stand and just watch the cars go by and do stupid stuff. And then we'd drink a little bit, and then we, the drinking age was 18. Right. And so drinking was more... Almost legal for some of us. Sure. And so it was easy, and beer was cheap. I can remember going to Ruby's, and Ruby's is now Lumpy's, but at the time it was Ruby's, and the rumor was that Ruby's was a whorehouse. Now, I don't know if that was true or not, but there was this guy, Lenny, this old wrinkly kind of guy. He played the piano. Okay. And it was 10 cents a beer at Ruby's. And I can recall, as a junior counselor, standing on the bar, giving Ruby $10, and yelling, this round's on me. And that was just the <laughs> coolest thing. It was like the, one of these dreams come true kind sure. of things. It was like being in the Wild West. That's great. And as I'm, I am a recovering alcoholic, and in those days I was not recovering from anything. Right. And so I had started drinking at a very young age. Mm. And by the time I was a junior counselor, I had already been drinking for a number of years socially. 
And so my friends, the other guys who went out, they were just learning to drink. Sure. And so I was, it was kind of fun to watch them because they would keep score and look at how much they could drink, and I just didn't care. I just wanted to drink. Right. Uh, so we had a lot of fun, a lot of good times down at Harley's in particular. Mm. Nice. Uh in terms of being on the staff, uh, who were your guys? Who were your guys that you got tight with while you were a staff man? Well, junior counselor-wise, and there's still Jimmy Rubens and I became good friends starting really in cabin 13. Hmm. And as junior counselors, we got even closer. We became roommates in college for a while. Um, when he transferred to U of I, where I was, and we lived together for a while. And he is still my brother and my best friend on the planet. Um, but there's guys I'm in touch with still Steve Rosen, who I knew before we started camp, um, who is still one of my best friends on the planet. Barry Feldman was a junior counselor. He was a year ahead of us. Kenny Roffey, mm. Mickey Heyman, um, guys, Keith Zimmerman, I've mentioned. And we all just hung, Bob Kaufman was a couple years older, but he was a guy that we hung out with. Um, Jimmy, Ru- Jimmy Rosen, Mitch Rubens. Mark Zusser, I can go through a whole bunch of guys who we hung out with. Mm-hmm. And it's like other people say, you can go years and years without seeing any of these guys. But when you do run into them or something brings you together, the bond goes right back to where we were. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can pick up like it was yesterday, and the feeling is still there. And there's something real special about Ojibwa for that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You mentioned Barry Feldman. Now, I've seen... There are several plaques in the mess hall that have your name on them. (laughs) And it would have been the same time that Barry Feldman's name, I would expect, as such a good athlete. I mean, he was the 1-2, right? He might have been the 1-1. I think Ken Roffey was the 1-1. I thought it might have been the other way. I thought Barry was the 1-1 and Kenny was the 1-2 and Dave Matazar was the 1-3. Okay. And then, so I've seen your name on several plaques. Well, in 1969, I happened to be on every team that could win. I swept that year. And when I say I, it's not a fair thing. It's not like I was the stud of the team. Sure. It was my first year in Cabin 13, and I did contribute to the teams, but I was certainly not the first pick or the best player on those teams in any, in any way, shape, or form. Nonetheless, in the championship games of every sport, we played Barry's teams. And one of my favorite traditions, and I'm sure Barry loves every minute of this tradition, is that when he comes up to visit every summer, we look at the 1969 plaques as I have him recount how they lost in every championship game, (laughs) two of which were choke type of things, where his team had the game won, and he had nothing to do with them choking. Sure. And it had nothing to do with him. Um, And the volleyball was just, I guess his team won the first game and our team won the next two. I don't think it was it was not a particular play you could point to. Sure. But in basketball in particular, there was a particular play. Um, I can recount it, which I'm sure you're sitting here goading me to do. Please Barry, do. I would like to tell you I'm sorry that I'm doing this, but I'm really not. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I'd like to tell you that I am, and, and I could give you that lip service, but I'm really not sorry to tell you. Um, his team was winning by a point with, I believe, 14 seconds to play. And again, I said Joel Karansky was just up visiting. He was the coach of my team. And he mentioned, he, we talked about that game a little bit too this weekend. Mm. Um, he said, I played a good game that particular game. That apparently I had a good game that night. But again, I was not contributing on this play. Um, all they had to do was throw the ball into Barry. And 
if we were smart, we would have fouled him, and most likely he would have made his two free throws, and that would have been the end of the game. There were no three-point shots in those days. Right. And so the kid who threw the ball in, I believe Gary Cramelow, instead of passing it to Barry, threw it to a boy named Craig Boyer, who I think when he sees Barry Feldman still runs and hides. Um, all Craig had to do was, again, hold the ball and get fouled and maybe make his free throws. And even if he didn't, there wouldn't be much time left for us to get the ball down. Certainly. Or throw the ball to Barry. He chose to shoot, which was the one thing you should not have done mm. in that situation. Even then, it was not the end of the game, although Steve Rosen, who was on my team, got the rebound. But Rick Brody fouls him on the rebound. So with about six seconds to go, Steve now has to make two free throws, which he did. And we win. The, we now have the lead. Barry gets the ball and th- tries a desperate shot that did not go in, and we win the game. I think now, fifty years later or whatever it is, the most delightful part of that game is making Barry recount that on an annual basis. And he is gen- <laughs> and I and and he's a, he is generous enough to do that for me pretty much every year. Um, the story doesn't really change, but he does. He, he's very entertaining in the way he tells it to me. That is so Ojibwa. <laughs> that we remember the games. No, that you have it. him recounted each year. That's well, such an Ojibwa move. It's just great. last a few weeks ago, I was visiting with Jimmy Rubens, and he was talking about a basketball game. When we were our last year, there were four teams in our league. I always beat a guy named Howie Cousin. I could always beat his team. I was the first pick of mine, and Keith Zimmerman was the guard, and so I was on the turn. I was the fourth player. And so I had the fifth player. So we, we made a good combination. And so I could get in Howie's head. Howie was this guy, and I could just get in his head, and I beat him every game. Mm. Jimmy beat me every game. And Howie beat Jimmy every game. And the fourth team was a guy named Bob Shulman, and we all beat Shulman. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> and so apparently, and Jimmy, there's a game where my team was up by a point, and Jimmy throws up a half-court shot at the buzzer that goes in. To beat me. Wow. And I was incredulous. I went nuts. I'm going, you, uh, uh, you know, it's Ojibwa. I can't believe he beats me. Sure. And I'm like, you couldn't make that shot again in a million years. And I made him go back out to the court and take that <laughs> shot about 20 more times, and he never made it again. But he made it when it counted, and he beat, he beat me in the game. Wow. And here it is all these years later, and, of course, we can still remember the games like that and Absolutely. still tell the stories. That's, That's part of the fun. Uh, we're, we're talking about staff guys who stuck out. When you were a counselor, were there campers that you really connected with that you had sort of a special bond with more than the average guy? Or um, There was a group of kids who I never had as campers, but it was a group that Steve Rosen, again, I'll bring his name up. He was their counselor when they were in cabin two. And it was Brian Borstein. I'm going to leave some out, and I'll apologize ahead of time for any I leave out. But mm-hmm. I remember Brian Borstein and Dan Nickow, and one of the Gorlick boys was in that group. And they were just a really fun group of kids that we had a good time with. And when I came back in 1976 as a senior counselor, those were the kids who were in 13. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a lot of fun with, with those guys. Nice. And you were in, that was you were in 13? No, with... I was a counselor in Cabin 7, actually. Oh, I see. Um <clears throat> One I remember in that cabin was Bobby Jacobson, and it's mm. because he remembers me as much as I remember him. Sure. And he does. He as apparently as a staff man did a lot of the things I did with them. 
Nice. We had a lot of fun that summer. I, I really had a lot of fun that summer. That was my last summer, really, as a senior counselor. Yeah. And I just graduated college, and I was basically up here to earn money to pay for airfare to go to Europe, where I was going to bum around for a while in the fall. And it was just, I hadn't been here in a couple of years because um, I wanted to pay for my own college, and they didn't pay us enough money as a counselor gotcha. to be able to do that. And uh, so I had real jobs in the summer in order to make enough money to pay for school. Mm. But as soon as I graduated, I came back. And it was just, an, it was the bicentennial year, which today doesn't sound like much, but that was a big deal at the time. Sure. And and the fireworks, I remember being a big special thing because of that. And we came in, Dave Scher was there. He was a counselor with me and uh, um, Dave Berkey and uh, Jeff Carroll. We all hung out together. And, uh, and I remember... We set up a slip and slide, and then we built it up on sand to go over the white fence. Oh, and wow. And so to introduce us as the firework sliders, <laughs> we were going to run and slide up this thing, and then you could slide, and we were theoretically going to slide over the white fence onto the sand. <laughs> um, and we, I believe we went out and lubricated ourselves a little bit before <laughs> the event. Um, <laughs> And I don't think any of us, including Dave, and Dave maybe can correct me on this, and please feel free to call in at some point, Dave, if that is the case. Sure, if you're listening. I don't believe any of us actually made it over the fence <laughs> at that particular time. But, but I remember making the attempt right. to do so. And we were just characters. We just had a lot of fun yeah, and did crazy stuff. And, and we got along so well. I can remember we all coached Pineapple League. Hmm. And one of our deals was... Whoever won the game would then buy the losing coach a Coke in the lodge after the game. And in those days, a lot of us smoked cigarettes. And so after the game, we would go up to the lodge and we'd have a Coke and a smoke and, and recount the game. And, and, and so we kind of, to keep the sore loser kind of thing from happening among us, we just created that tradition for that nice. year that we would all do that. Nice. It was fun. Very cool. Yeah. So that was 76. And then yes. you take a long hiatus. I take 20 years off. Now... In 77 and 78, I would come back for weekends. Hmm. I had become very good friends with the guy named Harry Seimer, who ran the Bar Harry's, because in the summer of 1976, I believe I was there 56 nights in a row. <laughs> and so Harry and Just Laura, to be clear, how many nights were you at camp? I mean, how many nights? The camp session was 56 nights. That's the question. <laughs> and in fact, my junior counselor, the last night of camp, a guy named Brett Keeshan, and I still see Brett now and again, I recall him looking at me, and he was junior counselor, first year, 17 or whatever he was, and he looked at me and goes, do you realize you were never in before 1 o'clock any night this entire summer? And no, I had not remembered that. Yeah, but well. there's a reason. But Harry and I had become buddies, and I had gotten a job. My first job out of college was the father of a camper mm. who had said to me, what are you doing after camp? I said, I don't know. I'm going to go to Europe and bum around. And he said, well, when you get home, look me up. I got a job for you. Which was good because I needed a job and I had no skills and I had a degree in history. And the paper, not a whole lot of historian wanted jobs in those days sure. in the paper. So I started to work for this guy. But his kids were still at camp. And so he would come up and visit all the time because stay in the dad's lodge. Mm. And I'd get to go with him. Nice. That's a good And move. I would stay at Harry. So it was a great perk. And so in 77 and 78, I was up a, a bunch in those summers. And then I moved down to southern Illinois and became a teacher and got married and raised my family and... Eventually, um, so I wasn't at camp. Mm. Then 20 years later, I became the principal of a school. I had one month off in July. And the first summer I had off, I never had off. 
because it's a small town and people were constantly bugging me, can you get me in school, can you do this, can you do that? And I, so I thought to myself, self, where can I go that's far enough away that they can't bother me, that I can afford, and as long as I'm dreaming, how about where the weather is nice enough that I don't have to live in the hell of southern Illinois? Mm, sure. And the first thing that came to mind was Camp Ojibwa. So I called Denny, and we had stayed in touch on the peripheral through the years. Nothing close, but, but, but stayed close enough that he said, well, come on up, we'll give it a try and see what happens. And I haven't missed a summer since. Nice. Were you close with Denny during your uh, camp, your actual camp days when you were there? I wouldn't say close, not like it is today. Right. Um, he was the program director. He was the boss. Um, I wasn't one of his guys. Yeah. But I wasn't not, I mean, it wasn't someone I, he didn't like. And I can remember one collegiate week, the last 76 again, after two days, I believe my team had five points. <laughs> and I remember going into Denny's office. I can tell you more stories about that week, but... We went into, I went to Denny's office, and I'm like, Dennis, I don't know what to do. I need your help. I've done what I know how to do. These kids are trying. It's not like they were doing anything wrong. I did, and he just, he gave me a little advice, and we ended up finishing in third place that year. Nice. Uh, the kids were terrific. Um, I don't know if I followed his advice particularly, but, uh, but I, I felt close enough to him to go talk to him about things like that. Yeah. And I can remember days when we'd been working hard, and he would say to us, uh, all right, fellas, uh, tell you what, here's four golf bags, fill three of them with clubs, fill one of them with beer, and take the afternoon off. And so we would fill three of them with clubs and one of them with beer and go take the afternoon off. Nice. So, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was that kind of thing. But nice. it, it, I, I would not say I was close with him in those days. Gotcha. Certainly not like I am now. Right. So then by 97, he's the director. Yes. And he's open arms. Give it a shot. Let's see how it turns out. I think he was skeptical. When I first came back, I mean, I'm looking back at it, the, the person who had left was a, a functioning flaming alcoholic who was fun and, and did a nice job as a counselor, but I was certainly not all the most responsible human being sure. on the planet. That, so that makes the, sense. The person that he knew. So I think he had some skepticism. I would have if I were he. And uh, obviously I'd sobered up at that point and I, I wasn't drinking and I had become responsible. And so it connected and it worked. Mm. And so you come back in 97, you're, you've been a staff ever since, okay. uh, and you were there for a month for the first six or seven, eight yeah. years or so? until uh, 2000. My first year back for eight weeks was 2004. Right. And then we've been in a cabin together yes. for several of those yeah, years as well. Um, and I can say wholeheartedly that in 2000, my first summer at camp, uh, I made two friends at camp, and one was a girl I got engaged to. That didn't pan out. And the other was you. And that is that is very mm -hmm. clear. Uh, I just didn't quite fit in yet. Ojibwa can be a tough place to fit into if you come in as an outsider. And especially you show up as the drama guy at the sports camp. Mm -hmm. All these things not played in my favor. And uh, you really went out of your way to be my friend that summer. And it meant a lot to me. And I would have never, I definitely wouldn't have come back to camp without that. Oh, I'm so, glad it worked out. Because yeah. you are my friend. I, I love you, my brother, and I want you to make. I want to make sure that you know that the girl I mentioned before, <laughs> and I uh, visiting your house in the yeah, off season was a huge to... deal because it made it made it very clear that it wasn't just a camp. Like camp wasn't just a facade. It wasn't just a place where oh yeah, well of course we love camp when we're there, but in reality, you know mm -hmm. whatever. It made it clear that no, those things really do last, and there really are connections even in such a short time. So mm -hmm. please know that was a big deal for me, okay. even if you were like oh whatever, thanks for showing up. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I would say you're welcome, but it's not like I, I did anything special. 
That's well. To, to, I mean, I, mean, I think uh, I think the wife made me dinner or something. Uh, something happened. Oh, we went to Walmart. I remember what we did. I mean, but I'm talking about becoming your friend was not right. like that was hard work. You're right. Oh, jeez, I got to become friends with this son of a bitch. No, I mean it wasn't <laughs> that. I mean, I, I liked you, and, and I, it was easy to be your friend. Right. And and you've continued to support my guitar habit, and uh, hey, I've been, I, I've I have now visited your plays that you. That is true. You came to New York, saw my Twice, thesis. Uh, yeah, we've done some. Uh, I've been to Mount Vernon many times yes, at this point. I feel like I know my way around. Well, I know the bad part of town. You know both streets. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the biggest difference for you coming back as a staff guy to the new Ojibwa, I guess, to or the the different Ojibwa? I don't know. Um, I mean, other than the fact that you were clear minded. Well, well, I was. I, I yes, but. And the other issue, I'm asked 20 years older. I had raised my kids. Right. I was in a responsible position. I wasn't a college kid. who, I, And so I was looking at it from a different perspective. I was a manager. I was a principal of a school. And so I was looking at camp from the management side, hmm. which is what my job had been. And so I was looking at the whole thing in a different way. When I'm a, when I'm a junior counselor and a senior counselor, I'm just like the kids today. I'm there to have fun, and I'm a, I'm a kid, and I'm yeah. acting like a kid. And my responsibilities are different. And when I come back and I'm 40 years old and a and responsible person in life, I'm just looking at it and I just looked at the whole thing differently. Yeah. And and so my perspective has changed in the sense that I'm not the kid who's going to go out and drink all night and come and try to play in the day. I was watching how Denny and Joel were managing things mm. and, and being, maybe being able to offer some suggestions and also to learn things that I could take back to my management skills. Sure. And in the meantime, I was also umpiring softball games and just getting to meet kids and people, and I made a lot of friends. Well, I was going to ask about, um, you mentioned Barry Feldman mm-hmm. and that you'd been here with Rafi and everything, and now those guys are, are part of the Boys of Summer, yes. the old-timers. We've talked a lot about them on the podcast. Several of them have been on already. Mm-hmm. Um, did you stay in touch with any of those guys during your hiatus or was that something that you sort of picked back up because you have always sort of been an at camp part of that group? I, I mean, at least, but I was not part of that group. Right. Um, Barry on the periphery a little bit mm-hmm. because I did keep in touch Steve Rosen and his wife and I and Jimmy Rubens and Mitch Rubens. We stayed in touch throughout the years. Yeah. And Barry would be and Kenny and Steve Galston and Eddie Cohn. And some of those guys, if Rosen's had a party, they'd be there maybe. Gotcha. And I would run into them if it was an occasion, you know, a wedding, a bar mitzvah, or one of their kids or whatever. I could, I might run into them at something like that. But that was really the extent of it. Gotcha. Yeah. And then, as obviously, I've rekindled those friendships by Absolutely. running into them year after year after year. Yeah. I mean, they come and visit, and, and you sort of slide right into being kind of an impromptu part of that group. I mean, you know, you shared some years with them here. And, those and some, I mean, I was not, all, Bernie Kerman, I did not know at all during my camp years. He was finished before I came back. Yeah. Uh, George, my first year, was a counselor in cabin 13. And so I didn't have that much to do with him. He was with the kids from 13. He didn't care about me, nor should he have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've gotten to know them and Broads and now Kaufman and I were friendly through the years. Gotcha. Um but now, through in the years intervening, I mean, I've certainly developed shtick with Bernie and uh, with those guys. Sure. And so we've developed our own stuff. I believe then, you guys exchange letters during the uh, summer. Every sometimes? summer, I will generally send Bernie a letter. Usually, I send it first. Although some years he'll send it first. Mm-hmm. And it, the letter is kind of uh, that implies like we write more than four sentences, and we really don't. It's really three or four. In fact, this year Bernie's letter to me when he wrote back. 
he told me I wasn't even worth a full piece of paper, and so I got a half a sheet of paper uh, <laughs> for from his letter. But it's basically, uh, I know you're coming, putts, and so I'm ready for you. Nice. And he's come set and spun back. You better believe I'm coming. You better be ready for me. And Very it's just nice. it's just great fun. It's, they're wonderful guys. Nice. The, I my I have really, and I, I'll try to get this try to get this out without crying. Um, Ojibwa is my family. I don't have a lot of birth family. I really have none left to speak of um, in terms of blood. I have my kids and my grandkids, but and they're there for me. But my real family is Ojibwa and those people. And when the chips are down, they are the people who have been there for me. Um, this summer was hell in my because of things that have happened. But boy, I heard from camp people, and when I talk about camp, it's not just the people my age. I can mention names of guys who, when I came back in 97, were counselors. Mm. And I'm 20 years older than them. And guys who, in the early 2000s, were campers and counselors. And I'm 25 years older than them. And they were there for me, for real. There was no crap. It wasn't bullshit. It was real. And I don't know how I would have survived some of the things without my Ojibwe family. Mm. So... If you want me to preach, I will preach that that's what Ojip was about. Hmm. It's, I mean, we had a good time. I've had a good time telling these stories and, and talking about all the stuff and the fun we had. And that is a great part of it. Ultimately, what camp is about is the relationships and the friendships and the love and the support. And you get that through all the fun and the crazy stuff that we did. But well, when the chips are down, I know I count on my Ojibwe family. And they will be there for me 100% of the time. So that's what camp means. Okay, I'm done. Fair enough. I think we got it. Okay. Do you need my one story? Absolutely. The last thing I ask everyone, please tell me one great camp story. Um, I heard this on a previous podcast, and as people who were not aware of the truth, <laughs> um, I believe it was told on Barry Feldman's podcast. <laughs> yes. But back in either 71 or 72, I was on Denny's list. And that was not a good thing to be on. I cannot tell you what I did to get on his list. And to be fair, when you were on Denny's shit list, he was real good about just giving you some shitty assignments and then being over it. He forgot it. He didn't hold it all summer on you. I mean, you worked your way off of it by just doing whatever you signed without bitching and moaning. Well, I actually have another story I should tell too. Anyway, and so I got peg duty. Peg duty was going to the far field where there were allegedly... (laughs) Pegs pounded into the ground to form a 220 track. <laughs> I say allegedly because I don't think anyone has ever found enough of those pegs to really create a 220 track. But nonetheless, we went out there and we did what we were supposed to. And we're looking for the pegs, and we were having very little success, really no success. It's a hot July day because the track meet is always the hottest day of the year. Sure. And the far field, of course, being no shade. It was miserably hot, and someone, and it may have been I, and it may have been someone else, but I'll take the credit or blame, (laughs) thought perhaps we should pull out our peg finders to help us to find the pegs. Mm. So to do that, of course, one had to get naked because the peg finder was attached to our body. It's kind of like dowsing for water, (laughs) Uh, but we used our own organ to do that. Mm. And so we were walking around the far field, 
attempting to find the pegs with our peg finders. Sure. Which would have all been well and good until Pearl Schwartz drove by. <laughs> Pearl apparently decided to look at the fire field as she drove by and saw us <laughs> on our peg duty, <laughs> our naked peg duty at that point. And she came back to camp and apparently gave Dennis Rosen an earful and a half. Um, <laughs> I believe I stayed on the list for a little while past, a little while longer. So. The best part is that she yelled at Denny and not at you. Well, <laughs> for whatever reason, he took the shit. Amazing. So there's my stories. Thank nice. you very much, Ojibwa. Good night. Drive safely. All right, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. Okay, there we go. Al Futransky, right here on the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast. So much fun. Al and I are great friends and getting to sit down and rehash some things, some of our own memories, a lot of his memories, what's left of them. <laughs> it was a really good one. And, you know, not to get too somber about it, but it was a tough summer. It was a real tough summer this year. And I was glad that he was able to tell us a little bit about what that was even if we didn't get too deep into it. So, thinking about you, buddy. Everyone else, have a fantastic Christmas, if that's your thing. If not, look forward to the new year. It's going to be a great one. 2016, best one yet. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Send me an email, Christopher at CampoJibbleHistory.org. Drop by the website, CampoJibbleHistory.org. Check us out, see what's going on over there. I'll be back in Chicago and about six weeks be doing a whole new round of podcast interviews so if you're listening and you think you'd like to be on the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast let me know as for me still 60 degrees out there in New York City I'm heading outside to have a cigar <laughs>